0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hey folks, welcome to a special bonus for The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White, and with me is Mr. Bob Murowski, who is talking about his work on so many things apart from The Other Side of the Wind. The rest of this interview is available on our Other Side of the Wind Redux episode, available now. So go ahead and enjoy the rest of the interview.
0: Where do you live in Michigan.
1: I am in Westland, so about midway between Detroit and Ann Arbor. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And you grew up where in the Thumb?
0: Uh, I was born in Detroit, but I grew up in a small town in the Thumb um, called Well Kindy for the most part, which is a town of three hundred people. And then when I went to high school, we moved to Bad Axe, which is the, uh, I guess the uh, county seat, which is three thousand people. So it was a significant uh, increase in. Uh, you know, town size, and uh, we had a local movie theater and a drive-in, so it was really moving up in the world.
1: How did you get interested in movies? Was it the theater?
0: Uh, Yeah, the theater, but mostly uh, TV, and then, um, you know, discovering magazines like Famous Monsters and The Monster Times and, you know, those kind of old monster magazines from the 70s. Um, You know, I was uh, always... Interested in movies just from like, you know, going to see them at the drive in with my parents. I think I, the first one I remember was like Planet of the Apes. We were probably still in Detroit at that time. But then, uh, just, you know, living in a small town, uh, without a lot to do, you know, uh, looking forward to seeing movies on TV, they're on, you know, the Saturday afternoon, uh, you know, kind of creature features type shows or the, um, like the CBS Late movie where they showed a lot of the old Hammer movies and, a lot of the old uh, AIP stuff and, you know, that kind of, those kind of things. Um, So, you know, I really started to become infatuated with uh, horror movies mostly. And then, of course, you know, getting a hold of like, you know, magazines like Famous Monsters really, uh, you know, cultivated that love.
1: Well, it's one thing to love movies and love monster movies, but it's another thing to kind of make that your career. And I was curious how you made that transition.
0: You know, I always knew I wanted to work in movies. Even from the time I was a kid, and I never shot some things on you know Super 8, uh, actually regular 8 at the time, I used to collect those little condensed movies that you could buy at Kmart from companies like Ken Films and Castle Films. You know, they were these silent, 200 foot versions, which was like about a 10 minute version of a, a movie. That was uh, even if it was a color movie, they were usually printed in black and white, and they were silent. You know, I collected a lot of the Universal movies and you know 50s movies like War of the Colossal Beast and the Spider and those kind of. Cool things. But yeah, I always knew I wanted to work on movies, especially after, like, you know, reading magazines like Famous Monsters, where they talked about the filmmakers and, and the behind the scenes stuff and taught me that there was a, uh, you know, a side of people actually making the movies that I loved. You know, so I sh- shot a few things when I was a kid on, you know, different, uh, you know, 8mm and super 8mm. And then uh, once I graduated from high school, I went to Michigan State. By the time I got there, they had actually phased out their filmmaking program unfortunately and everything was video but I still you know, basically got a major in telecommunication which was video production but there was a a nearby college called Lansing Community College and they still had a film program it was taught by a guy named Bill Blanchard who had worked for Disney in like 50s and 60s uh, doing uh, a lot of those uh, kind of wonderful world of Disney kind of nature documentaries and stuff so he ran the film program and he had a really they had really great classes. They were small. They only had an enrollment of like eight or ten people in the class, unlike the gigantic classes at Michigan State. You could always get your hands on the equipment and, you know, the, the cameras and the film editing equipment and everything else. So, You know, that was a, a big thing for me to be be able to actually work on film, take those film classes at that community college while I was going to Michigan State. So between that and the stuff that I was doing at State, and I, at Michigan State I ran a, a weekly film group where we showed old 60-millimeter cult movies. Every weekend we would show something, you know, we showed all the, like, you know, the rock and roll movies like, uh, Decline of Western Civilization and, uh, DOA and Gimme Shelter. And we showed a lot of like, you know, all the Russ movies and all the things like Ryser had and mostly just movies I wanted to see that weren't available because it was sort of in that early days of home video where a lot of things weren't even in release. So the only way you could see a lot of movies was, uh, renting them in 16 millimeters. So we were showing them every week as part of a film group. So yeah, I was just dealing with film stuff the entire time, and so you know, obviously, with the, the desire to go into
1: film at some point when I graduated, it's so unusual to me that MSU was phasing out their film program. And I think you're you're only six years older than I am, and I went to U of M, and they still had yeah. a fairly robust film program. They were so, film and video. Still
0: did. And I, I don't know. Look, I don't why why I didn't go to U of M. I still have no idea. But I had friends who you know had gone gone or were going to Michigan State, so that was a big part of it. You know, in, in retrospect, I should have should have gone to U uh, of UMM. But I didn't. But like I said, I got lucky because, um, you know, there was a neighboring community college that still had a great film program. and It was very hands-on. So I kind of made my own thing with my, the film group I ran and, you know, the whole deal.
1: So why editing? Uh, editing is always a very curious mix to me of technical and artistic. And I'm curious how you got into editing so much.
0: I just always liked it. I, it was a part of the process that I um, really enjoyed. You know, when, when, when I was at Michigan State, we also had a TV show and we, so we would shoot, um, punk bands that played. And then, um, I would edit, edit the material together for this weekly show that we had. And even working on those old, you know, three quarter inch editing systems, I really, you know, enjoyed the process of taking a bunch of footage and really making it into a program. And, uh, you know, even prior to that, when I was a kid with a, a movie camera, you know, you quickly learned that a lot of your footage is bad. So it, at that point, it's just, you know, figuring out that you need to cut out the bad stuff to make make it more presentable. But, you know, that kind of gave me, gave me my start as well. And um, and then when I came out to, here to L.A., uh, a close friend of mine is this guy named Mike Ginesco, who I'd gone to Michigan State with, was working in editing on um, Sam Raimi's movie, Evil Dead 2. So the first jobs I got when I came out to, to L.A. in 1987 were post-production jobs because those were the shows he was working on and those were the people that he knew. And I was able to uh, You know, kind of get my foot in the door working in the world of post. Now, if if I had come out here and, you know, everybody was, my friends were working in production, I, you know, may have gone that route instead. But, um, you know, it just kind of ended up like that. And, and, you know, I always like the process. I, you know, I like, I like, you know, working on something and being able to complete it. Work by myself and actually, you know, in a more, um, solo position (laughs) where, uh, you know, I'm sort of, doing my own thing and, and calling all the shots and figuring it out as opposed to, you know, being on a film crew where, you know, you're one of a hundred people. So that might be part of it as well. And, you know, working with the sound and the music and, you know, everything, you know, I just, um, it was just a part of the process that I could sort of gravitated to just because, um, you know, I like controlling all, the, all those elements and working with, you know, all the elements and, and making it into a, a finished product as opposed to, um, you know, raw materials, which is, you know, sort of what you're doing if you're working on the film set.
1: What were some of those early gigs like? What were some of the films that you worked on?
0: The first movie was this um, prison movie uh, called The Destroyer, starring Lyle Alvedo and um, Anthony Perkins. And I was on that for a, a few weeks, just helping out with some of the um, sound editing. They were building the, the, the tracks. You know, at that point, everything was on film. So you know, we were building sound units where you would go down and you know cut in a line of dialogue and... Dialogue gets split out on all these different tracks, and you would end up with you know thirty or forty reels uh, of sound for the mix that would be used to mix down to you know one reel in the final product. But everything was built on these big reels of, of um, film back back in those days. So yeah, you know I worked on that. I worked as an assistant on a movie called um, Danger Zone Two, which was um, directed by and starred this guy J- Jason Williams, who had who was famous for playing uh flesh gordon in the x-rated uh flash gordon parody and uh, at that point he was he was a producer and he was making these sort of low-budget um action movies he was kind of like a low-budget uh clint eastwood kind of character so he was doing these uh biker movies called danger zone and i got on that as an assistant editor and worked for, for quite a while then as a matter of fact when when he um was going to do Danger Zone 3, um, It was the, the budget was a lot lower, and I, I, he offered me the position of editor just because he knew I would, you know, it would, it would be a big step forward for me. So that was his... The follow-up to Danger Zone 2 was was my first um, position as an actual film editor. Prior to that, I had worked as an assistant. As a matter of fact, I was... Actually, at the, at the time, I was um, working as an assistant editor on Sam's movie Darkman, which was a... Really big universal movie, but, you know, I quit that movie to go work on this, you know, really super low budget uh, biker film because it was an opportunity to, to actually be the editor. And, um, so that was a big step forward. And actually, I, so I quit Darkman and, and to- totally edited. They shot, I totally edited uh, Danger Zone 3. We finished it and, and Darkman was still going on. So I was, I was actually able to come back and get my old job back because it was such a big movie that it was just still, hadn't even been, been finished yet. That that was actually a big break for me because um, I think Sam and and our, this producer Rob Capen and those guys you know really respected that I was willing to to quit a big show to go do a, a little tiny low budget show and ended up seeing the movie and and uh, hiring me to be the uh, editor of um, Army of Darkness, uh, which was 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 the movie that they made after Darkman. You know, it was really uh, you know fortuitous in a lot of ways, and I think they respected the fact that I was you know willing to, to work for. A very low wage to to kind of move up in position, and I think they thought I did a a decent job on the movie, and you know the movie came up pretty entertaining. So, um, you know, they hired me to uh, to be the editor on Army of Darkness. So that was a, it was a big break for me.
1: Now, how did you get involved with Sam Raimi? Because I I don't want to speak out of term, but I think you've edited every feature that he's done since Army of Darkness. Is that right?
0: Well, not exactly. There was a a point where we sort of. Split apart for a little while, so I I didn't edit the the baseball movie for Love of the Game, which I don't think I would have wanted to anyway. I'm not I'm not a real sports fan, and uh, even even if it's the Tigers, which I guess it was, but um, and then Simple Plan, which I would, would have liked to have been involved with, then he hired the, the guys who had edited the baseball movie. But I think uh, you know what happened after um, you know Army of Darkness. I think turned out great, but Universal didn't really care about the movie, and it it was shelved for a year. When we finished it because, um, Universal and Dino DeLorenis were in a lawsuit over, um, Hannibal Lecter. Dino had made a movie called Manhunter with uh, Michael Mann and Universal was making Silence of the Lambs and Dino was trying to claim ownership of, um, the character. So anyway, Army of Darkness was a movie Dino produced and was, Universal was supposed to be picking up and delivering, but there was this horrible lawsuit between the two companies and our movie was basically shelved for a year until everything got resolved when everything finally got resolved and they and they ended up putting the movie out, they just, they didn't really understand it or care about it. It was like an old property that, you know, nobody was really interested in at that point. And so they just sort of pushed it out in February. didn't really promote it that much and just, it didn't really do anything. So when, um, you know, Sam got an opportunity to make his next movie, which I guess was um, Quick and the Dead, you know, so even, even before they had done Quick and the Dead, Quick and the Dead was a big, Columbia Pictures release, and um he was just sort of brought on as, uh, into an existing project. And he ended up, he basically said, Look, I'm sorry I can't bring you onto this, but they just want me to hire, you know, people have done a bunch of main movies. So we ended up not working on that, and then, you know, I ended up not working on the next couple as well, but then eventually I got back involved with him, and, um, he was doing a TV show called American Gothic, and brought me on to do the title sequence, and, uh, then we ended up working together ever since. You know, I did, uh, The Gift, which was kind of a low budget thriller he was doing for Paramount, and then I did, ended up getting on Spider-Man and, you know, have been on everything ever since. But, um, you know, so much of working in LA is people judge you from the work you've done or the, or the position you're in, you know? You know, until you actually make a, uh, a larger, work on a larger budget movie, it's, uh, you know, hard to get another one. But after doing Spider Man, I mean, that just really opened up a huge amount of doors because then I could, you know, really be able to be considered for anything.
1: Yeah, because that was, uh, you know, less people forget that was a huge hit when that came out.
0: People do forget, but it was, it was actually the first movie to, to sort of break that $100 million opening weekend barrier. Because prior to that, no movie had ever really done it. And now when you think about it, like every, it seems like every movie that comes out makes over $100 million on their opening weekend. And if, if they don't, it, it just seems like a disappointment. But, you know, Spidey 1 was actually the first one to do it. And, um, you know, it was, it was a huge deal. And, you know, it got really good reviews. And then, um, you know, it, it allowed us, allowed Sam to have basically freedom when he did Spidey 2 to really, you know, have, have free reign and, you know, do whatever he needed to do and not be interfered with that much. Both of those movies were a really great experience because, um, you know, they just even the first one they they primarily left us alone and let us kind of
1: make the movie we wanted to make, which is great, yeah. And yeah, that yeah. second one, I mean, that to me is still. And I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass, but that's still one of the best superhero films that is out there to me.
0: No, it's really good, and it's just uh, it's really it was a really a testament to Sam because uh, after the first movie, he had the freedom to do what he wanted to do, and it was like totally his movie at that point. And then for whatever reason, the, the third one, after the success of the first two, because, you know, the, the second one, even though it didn't make quite a, as much as the first one did, it still made a lot of money, and critically, it was like, it got such great reviews. It was one of those movies that really, like, was such a critical critical uh, success as well. But then when it came time to do the third one, everybody just thought that they were responsible for the success of the first two movies, and, and everybody just... Became mad with power and just really started to interfere with the project. I mean, from the the producers to the actors to the you know all the studio execs and everybody was sort of like felt that they were the author of the other two movies for whatever reason. And Sam just really got kind of pushed out. With a, a shame because I, mean, I think the the third movie could have been just as good or better than than the, than the first than the second one. You know, in reality, uh, but it just ended up becoming something that was like didn't really make anybody happy at the end of the day, even though I think there's a lot of good stuff in it.
1: Well, I'm trying to remember, with that one, a few years ago, something snuck onto Amazon. It was either like the, the producer's cut or the editor's cut.
0: Well, well, we did. yeah, it was just bogus. They could, Sam wanted to call the editor's cut. What happened was the, the, the studio was getting ready to put out a big box set because they had their newest Spider-Man franchise, second reboot version that just came out uh, like a year and a half ago. The third version of the so, um, yeah, I came not Homecoming, yeah. So they wanted to put out a, a box set of the three movies and they wanted some additional material. They asked Sam if he would, you know, give them some deleted scenes, which he never usually ever wants to do, you know, because he just, um, he just doesn't like for people, people to see the, like, the process, you know, stuff that didn't work and stuff that we had cut out. So he emailed me and he said, well, what do you think about this? He goes, you know, how I feel about, how I feel about, you know, giving stuff, deleted stuff or, you know, animatics or anything. And I go, I said, well, you know, we should use this as an opportunity to sort of go back to an earlier version of the movie that we thought was better before the studio really started interfering and before they made us do a bunch of reshoots to change things. I said, why don't why don't we just like you know kind of go back to an earlier cut and at the same time you know totally restore Christopher Young's original music, which was had been mostly replaced because the studio thought it was too different and panicked and and, and re- retracted a lot of the music and got rid of a lot of, of Chris's stuff and just kind of recycled a lot of the old Danny stuff, Danny Altman stuff from the first two movies. Sam said, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, I he, he said, let me think about it. Then, then the next day he emailed me and he said, you know, I really don't want to do it, but um, he said, if you want to do it, go ahead. But he said, I, I don't want them to call the director's cut. Just, we'll just call him I'll do it if, if, if we can call the editor's cut. So you can take the blame for it. And I said, uh, I said, fine, you know, it's like, I, I said, look, we all feel it's a better version of the movie. So I think it's our duty. If, if we have the opportunity, if the studio is actually, after all these years, going to let us do it, I think we should do it. And he goes, okay, just don't tell me anything about it. They'll just call it the editor's cut and and uh go ahead and do whatever you want to do. So yeah, it, but it really wasn't an editor's cut. What it really actually was, was just a, an older, what I thought was a better version of the movie. Could never be perfect because, you know, the, the script was so compromised even before we started shooting because of like a lot of bad ideas of, of putting, you know, Benham in at the last minute and all this other stuff. But I just feel that there was a better version of the movie with, with better scenes and, and better sequencing than, than what got released in theaters. So that's, that's the, sort of the story behind the editor's cut, so called editor's cut.
1: Backtracking just a little bit, I was really yep. curious, what was it like working with John Woo on Hard Target?
0: Working with John was great. So, after I did Army of Darkness, the next thing Sam was doing was, was producing this John Woo movie and uh, Hard Target. And I was a huge John Woo fan, Better Tomorrow 1 and 2, uh, The Killers, Hard Boiled. I mean, I, I loved all of his Hong Kong movies. Never dreamed I would get an opportunity to work with him, but, but then just coincidentally, for whatever reason, you know, Sam and, and Rob Tapper were producing his, his American film debut. So Sam said, well, love, love for you to be able to edit." it. Why don't me me with John and see if you guys hit it off. So I met with John and, and you know, we I guess we we hit it off and I got hired to do the movie. And it was it was ama- an amazing experience during shooting. I mean, you know, shooting down in New Orleans and the script wasn't the greatest, but you know, it's and you know, it started John Claude Van Dam, which was um, you know, okay, but you know, he's he's no chow on fat and it was a that was a big problem. But but still, uh, but the supporting cast was incredible. I mean Lance Henriksen, Wilford Brimley just a lot, a lot of a lot of the um side characters I thought were re- really great and and of course with John's direction and and the staging of the action sequences was just you know f- phenomenal but the problem was um it, John, Jean-Claude I mean he felt he was the creative force behind the movie when it was really a John Woo movie it ended up becoming like a a very uh disappointing experience because um you know we had a movie that I thought was actually a really cool, stylish John Woo movie that, um, really felt like something John had made. But it was another one of these situations where the studio didn't really understand the stylistic stuff. You know, they hired John because they knew he was a popular Hong Kong filmmaker, but I don't think they really knew about or cared about his, his, uh, stylistic stuff. You know, Jean Claude was, was a real bully and really wanted to, um, you know, take over the movie. And unfortunately, at that point, um, he had, you know, the producers Kept telling me, you know, I don't know what you've heard about Jean Claude because he's known for like you know taking over the editing of his movies, which apparently he had done a lot on some of the, a lot of the Canon Canon movies he had done. But they said, you know, if we just want to let you know that this is a John Woo movie, and if Jean Claude gets, if you see him within a hundred yards of the editing room, just you know call us and we'll have security remove him from the lot. I said, okay, yeah, fine. I'm I, yeah, that's great because uh, you know I'm totally into protecting the movie, and it should be a. a John Woo movie, but then one day, Jean Claude signed a three-picture deal with Universal to do you know three more movies, and suddenly the next very next day, I got a call and they said, "Hey, uh, Jean Claude's coming to the editing room. He wants to you know see the movie. He wants he has a lot of ideas and you know really wants to um, to um, try try some things." But I mean, even then they said, look, you know, just entertain him, try his ideas. If you, if you like them, you know, do them. If not, you know, don't. But, um, we really need to, um, placate this guy because, um, you know, he's the star of the movie and, and, uh, you know, really wants to be involved in the editing, which was totally counter to, like, everything that they had said prior. And what happened was, you know, John Wu ended up just becoming totally marginalized and Jean Claude ended up taking over the movie. It just became a, a a miserable experience because it was really, um, you know, it, it was me trying to fight for John's stuff, and at the same time, John Claude was working with um, another editor at Universal. I mean, it was the old days when we were cutting on film, and um, so they actually made a film copy of the film print, and they were working on a different a copy of the of the of the film cutting on film, and just doing a lot of things that were basically ruining the movie that. Um, I didn't agree with, and John didn't agree with, and, um, you know, he just ended up getting pushed out, and they sort of took it over that way. You know, it became a really, it, it, it just became a situation where, you know, we had, had a movie that was like, I thought pretty good. It could have never been great, given, you know, the star of the movie, and, um, you know, that the, the, it was sort of a B movie script, but I think it could have been a lot better, but they just ended up ruining a lot of it, you know, mostly just taking out a lot of John's stylistic stuff. You know, the studio didn't like and, and our test audiences, uh, you know, had a, had a weird and negative reaction to or didn't understand it. And, you know, like a lot of things, if things are different in the movie, you know, you get a weird response from a test audience. It doesn't mean that they hate it. It just means that, you know, they were just, um, confused by it or not, in, not into it or whatever. But, you know, it was just, just a really bad, weird political situation, you know, and, and I think the movie ended up getting pretty trashed as a result. It was disappointing. And then we had a lot of ratings problems. You know, we we had to go in eight times to get an R rating, which is absurd when you think about it, because it was, uh, to give a movie like that, basically an X rating, NC-17. So it was cutting out all the blood squibs, and then even then we had to go in like six more times to, to get the rating. So it was a different time. I mean, I just, um I mean, the kind of stuff that we were having to cut then, you could get away with in a PG-13 movie. Now we're on a TV show. I mean, it got to, it was so absurd. It got to the point where I was, um, cutting on muzzle flashes. Uh, I was on the phone with, uh, the, the head of the MPAA and he said, it's alright if somebody shoots somebody twice or two, maybe three times, but he said anything beyond that we feel is excessive. We'll give, give you an NC-17. Cause at that point, all the, all the blood squibs were gone. So I was having to go in and actually trim out muzzle, like gunshots and, you know, somebody like John Will, where he has somebody shooting you know, with two guns. I mean, it was it was it was insane to think that that a, a shot of a, a, a muzzle flash was was creating essentially an X rating for a movie. That was a really tough process to be involved
1: with. Has there ever ever been a release of that that is close to what you saw?
0: They let us do what they called like a uh, international version, and uh, we actually made. Before they cut the negative, we made dupe copies of everything that was being butchered down, and so we could have um, an ex- extended version pre-MPAA, pre-Jean-Claude, pre-a lot of stuff. And uh, we did a full sound mix, finished and completed it, and they were supposed to be the version that got released internationally, but then I think they decided that they didn't want to spend the money to actually take it to the final step. So it was like weirdly, like lip, lip service to to John Woo that they even did it. I think in a weird way, I don't, and I don't know if it ever came out anywhere like that. I mean, it, it could because it was it was definitely prepared, but I don't know if it did. You know, there's some a few bootleg versions of the movie floating around, or like early cuts that we had from some of our test screen, one of our test screenings somehow one of the tapes got out. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a movie that's um, you know right for re- restoration and and reconstruction. But like I said, you know, it's never going to be a perfect movie or a great movie, but I think it could be, you know, like maybe be elevated from a C minus to like a B minus or something, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, and for me, it felt like such a natural to have Sam producing a John Woo film, just the style stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. But again, two guys who the studio like really walked all over in their in their earlier movies. I mean, the kind of stuff that we were going through on uh Hard Target was the same kind of stuff that, you know, we went through on uh, Darkman. You know, where they were making Sam cut out things that they thought were too stylish or or outrageous or funny or over the top or, or whatever. You know, they're they're all, always they always talk about these tone issues. You know, that they think it's the wrong tone. I, th- I think things are about be- a lot better now than they used to be, but you know, back then, it, they studios didn't like when you mix genres. If you have funny things in a horror movie that, you, you know, it, they needed to be taken out or if, if, things, things, if they thought things were too uh, stylistic or with the slow, you know, John's slow motion and, and dissolves and those kind of things, you know, they, they there was always this negative reaction and, and feeling that it had to be pulled out to make the, the movie more acceptable to audiences. You know, the, this least common denominator style of filmmaking, where they would rather have 95% of the movies think it was, you know, good. Then 30% saying thinking it was great. You know, 20% thinking that, and 20% thinking that it was horrible, you know? And then 50% sort of falling in the middle. So this just this, this desire to please everybody that ends up really like pleasing nobody. It just becomes this watered-down product. Fortunately, I think things have, have changed a lot, you know, which is good.
1: You're no stranger to film restoration. I mean, you've been working, how long has Grindhouse been around?
0: It's been around over twenty years. It's been—I think we formed it in 1995. Sage and I, Sage Stallone, who was my partner at, at the time, formed the company Grindhouse Releasing because we loved movies and we wanted to see these kind of Italian, you know, horror movies and, and B movies that we loved get get a, get a a plus quality, you know, release, like Criterion level releases for movies that people historically didn't, didn't care about and and had only been released in in the worst possible transfers and from the worst elements and by people who never cared about them and tortured them and changed the music and changed the credits and cut time out of them just for the sake of making it shorter and, you know, just viewed the stuff as product, you know, and we were trying to rectify that. I mean, now, now of course, there's a lot of different companies that are doing it, you know, um, and doing a great job. You know, everybody from, you know, Synapse to Vinegar Syndrome to Severum to, um, you know, Shout Factory, but at the time we were doing it, you know, nobody else was really that interested in these kind of movies. So that's why we really wanted to to do it, because we love the movies and really wanted to see them get a, a great presentation for the first time.
1: I don't imagine you ever had to work on a project that was as scattered as Other Side of the Wind.
0: I worked on a movie called Gauntlet of the Pope, which was directed by uh, Duke Mitchell. It's great. But it was very similar, very similar circumstance to um, Other Side of the Wind. It was a movie that was made in the mid-70s, shot really low budget only partially edited never finished the director died before the movie was finished and and it, it was never had never been uh, completed or or released in any form a lot of the same kind of technical problems bad sound film that was like in not great condition uh you know lack of documentation and in what the intentions were of scene and um you know in, in terms of the script not having the director around to to be there to um to work with so that movie when when Sage and I Got it back in the mid '90s. Um, we ended up not finishing it until um, 2010, so that was a, re- a really long-term project. I mean, it wasn't um, other side of the wind where I was working on it full time, but I was, you know, working on it between shows. So it's funny because when I, when I think back, you know, I had an editing room set up in my, my garage and a uh, film editing room, and I was working on weekends on um, Gone with the Pope. And at the same time, three houses down, Gary Draver was, was uh, in his garage working on the other side of the wind because he was putting things together and putting reels together and putting presentations together, taking them around, trying to uh, raise financing to get the movie finished. And uh, at that point, I, I guess both movies were sort of being worked on simultaneously, even you know back in uh, 2005 or whatever it was. But yeah, I mean, having having done that, I mean, that was like a full on restoration project, like this one. It was a movie, unfinished movie that we took to completion, made film prints, and actually, I think it turned out pretty well. For me, that was like a good experience that I actually mentioned to Frank Marshall when you know I I got interviewed for this show. I said, look, I've kind of done a similar thing already with this movie, Gone with the Pope. Dealing with that, that kind of stuff, all the stuff that I do in the you know the grindhouse releasing movies, we're always you know trying to restore things and deal with bad elements and make them better and fix up the sound and deal with like, not, not so great source material, trying to make it as, as good as possible, you know, using the same techniques and tools and to clean things up. It's, you know, it, was, it, was a, it gave me a really good foundation to, to work on the Orson Welles movie as well.
1: How did you get involved with uh, an American hippie in Israel?
0: Before I came out to LA, when I got out of college, I went to, to work for a film distributor in Detroit. He was really a sub distributor and, uh, he had an office in Birmingham, Michigan. Uh, a guy named Bob Mason, he had a company called Mason Release Corporation and, um, he handled drive-in movies, you know, exploitation films. You know, of course, I was again, like with Gary Graver, I was, I love exploitation movies. So to, to go to work for a guy who was, um, at that point, he had demons in the theaters and gates of hell and, uh, you know, invasion of the blood farmers. And I mean, he had all these movies that, you know, i loved i mean i was obsessed with and uh here was here was the guy in in detroit who basically booked them in all the uh detroit drive-ins you know drive-ins like the fort wyoming and the van dyke drive-in and even the drive-in where i was from up in Bad X, michigan the m53 drive-in you know so um bob bob mason this guy bob mason uh had hundreds of prints in shipping depots around the uh The Detroit area, some in Detroit, some in like Cleveland, some in Cincinnati, hundreds of movies that he had distributed over the years. So um, when I was working for him, I said, you know, we should try to get everything in one place. And we rented a warehouse in Pontiac, Michigan, and and I drove around the Midwest one summer just picking up all the film prints, 35 millimeter prints, and getting them all into our one central warehouse. And one of the movies was uh, this movie called American Hippie in Israel that he had and it was so b- b- bizarre i didn't, had never heard of it because i really considered myself to be an expert on a lot of a lot of these exploitation movies even, even back then and it was a movie that just seemed like it, it nobody knew anything about i mean this was all pre-internet and it was just so obscure and i talked to bob about it and he goes he, he goes yeah it's this great movie that i picked up like years ago and he said i really um i really loved the movie and i really thought we could play midnight shows and it was so unusual and funny and weird and quirky. And, and, um, he said, you know, but nobody ever wanted to see it. He said, I don't think I ever got a single booking. He said, I got the movie. I, I showed it to all the theater owners and everybody just, they wouldn't even show it as a midnight show or I couldn't even get a book to drive it. He goes, it everybody thought it was so bad. He goes, but he, he said, but you know, I always loved the movie and I always thought that someday something could happen with it and people would discover it. When I moved up to California, um, I uh, went, one year I went back to Michigan for Christmas, and I went and saw my old friend Bob, the distributor, and you know I said I was thinking about that movie American Hippie, and he he goes, well, if you want let, to, let's try to do something with it. So I I took one reel of it back in my suitcase, I took reel five back to uh, Hollywood with me, and and I screened it, and I just thought it was like incredible. I couldn't believe how great it was. So I had him me the entire print, and, you know, for years we talked about trying to do something, and we got to transfer it transferred at one point, and, you know, just thought, had always talked about doing something with it, and then finally I ended up, like, you know, getting in all this was, like, pre, like, Grindhouse releasing. You know, I didn't really have a distribution company, but then when Sage and I formed Grindhouse, I always thought, you know, we should finally try to do something with American Yippie in Israel. So the first thing I did was I put together a trailer. I cut a trailer together, we put, started putting it out on our, all of our releases, just to try to generate some interest in the movie and what happened was somebody pull, pulled it off of one of our dvds uh drink your blood or whatever had come out at the time and uploaded it onto youtube and it, it became like I, I i don't know if i would call it viral or whatever but um it started to like really get this cult following then some guys in in, in tel aviv just kind of became obsessed with the movie one of the guys uh a, a guy named uh yaniv who's since become a friend of mine uh Became, like, super obsessed with the movie because they, they felt in Israel they had never really had, like, a, a cult movie before. So he found a print at, in in the in the, uh, in the film archives in, I think, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or something. They got a print and started running it as midnight shows, and it became, like, almost like a Rocky Horror Picture Show in Tel Aviv when they were running it. It just became so popular. People were, like, dressing up like the characters. Um, you know, people knew all the, the dialogue. You know, they were throwing things at the screen. And it just became this, like, midnight cult movie all because of this stupid trailer that I had put together. So anyway, that really kind of opened the floodgates because then I was able to find a lot of the... He was able to find the actors for me, and we shot interviews with everybody, people who had worked on the movie, the production manager. I mean, all these people. Uh, the, the son of the um, director, I became friends with him. And then finally, we just it went from a movie where I didn't know how I would ever release it Having a company grind us releasing, they ending up having like this huge amount of like materials, like all these interviews, and to to, to be able to put out a really super deluxe Blu Ray edition, it really um, blossomed into something that I th- thought was really cool.
1: I don't want to put you on the spot, but and you might remember this, you might not, but I've seen two different versions of that film as far as the ending goes.
0: Yeah, there's a ver- there's a version called The Hitchhiker, and actually when when we that was the version that that they they had at the film archives in Israel. And that's the version they were showing. I actually got them to transfer it for me and we included it as a bonus disc on our first release. We did a three disc set and the third disc was, was that Hitchhiker version. It was pretty bad quality because it was, you know, a really scratched up print and it had burned in subtitles and, and the transfer that those guys did was pretty poor, but I really wanted to preserve that version, which had that weird version, that shot at the end where the car flies away. And of course the guys in Israel, when, 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 when I, Release the Blu-ray, they really wanted me to put that into uh, our version of the movie. Actually, I wanted to, but I thought, you know, I, I had been to screens where, like, the abrupt ending of the American version got such a huge reaction that I really wanted to preserve both versions. Because the way the Amer- American version ends where it just, like, suddenly the guys, the, the two moms get into the car and then it just cuts to this really shaky shot that says the end. I've been in screens where people just, like, go crazy because it's so abrupt. So, but but yeah, there are there are two slightly different versions, and actually, actually, the Israeli version has a few more things, like the the the, the um, mimes killing
1: all the hippies with the machine guns,
0: and there's a few things that are longer. Um, I think the sex scenes go on a little bit longer, and some things like that.
1: Well, what is going on with Grindhouse these days? Are you working on any releases?
0: Yeah, we're working on a few cool things. Um, our next release is going to be um, this really great um, Umberto Lenzi. Who was the director of um, Cannibal Ferox, aka Make Them Die Slowly? He directed a series of police movies in the in the seventies. They were kind of like Dirty Harry ripoffs. Um, there was a huge subgenre of police movies in Italy, inspired by Dur- Dirty Harry and Serpical and those kind of American movies. He did a, a great one called uh, Roma Mano Armata, which was the Italian title, which um, was released in, in the U.S. as a, Assault with a Deadly Weapon. AKA Uh Brutal Justice, A.K.A. The Tough Ones, which was the English language title that you know we had on our elements. So The Tough Ones, which is a great uh, Italian crime, really violent in the tradition tradition of Lindsay, but uh, really energetic, has great performances from um Maurizio Merley and, and Tomas Melian, who's incredible and Franco Nicolucci score, but just really, you know, Lindsay always said that he was always kind of ashamed of the cannibal movies that he was known for, and he always was like most proud of the police movies. And uh, it's a really great, enter- entertaining, uh, energetic, violent movie. So I'm excited about that one. It was always one of Sage's favorite movies, and we never really got it together while he was alive. But, um, you know, I'm, so I'm glad to finally be getting that one out. And then we've got another movie called, Scum of the Earth, aka Poor White Trash Part 2, directed by, uh, S.F. Brownrigg, who made Don't Look in the Basement. Kind of a, you know, backwoods, hillbilly exploitation movie. 70s, really ugly, grimy, dirty, uh, sleazy, uh, but entertaining, really well acted, um, well directed, well, well written, um, but, you know, really downbeat and, you know, like a real dingy, dirty, backwoods, you know, movie. You know, we, we've been working on that one for a while just amassing a lot of really great material interviews, and uh, we'll probably be releasing it in conjunction with a book about the, you know, S.F. Brownrigg and the whole Texas filmmaking scene from the time. My partner on that is uh, David Shulkin, who wrote the Last House and the Left book, The Making of Last House and the Left. Phenomenal. So he's been writing this incredible book about this whole Texas filmmaking scene. They'll probably come out in conjunction with one and another. But the cool thing about uh, Poor White Trash Part Two is it was never has never really been released on DVD or Laserdisc or anything. It was released on VHS years ago but never really uh got much of a release and hasn't really been seen since. So it'll be cool to get that out again. And a few other things, uh um some other movies that you know we've had for years like Death Game and <gasps> Yeah.
1: Did you hear that Sandra Locke just passed away?
0: No, you're kidding me.
1: Yeah. I just saw it come up on Twitter.
0: Oh no. I, I was just talking uh, about with the, the DP yesterday, and we were going get, to get in touch with her. Oh, no, that's terrible.
1: I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. No,
0: that's that's horrible, because I didn't know it, and, and and I thought, well, the great thing, unlike some, some of these other movies, the great thing about Death Game is, like, everybody's still around. Colin Camp, Sandra Locke, Seymour Cassell, I mean, all the ladies are still with us. The, the director's still alive, David Worth, the DP, uh, the writer, um... And I just thought it was a great opportunity to have such a comprehensive package. Did, did Have you heard what happened?
1: No, I, I just have seen her name coming up on Twitter and I was like, what is this? And sure enough, she passed away.
0: Oh, what a shame. Oh, uh, it's so sad. I mean, I mean, so much of this stuff is like just timing, you know, with the old movies, just like being able to get the stuff done, you know, as soon as you can. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, when we were doing, uh, uh, the tough ones, the, the Lindsay movie, you know, while we were preparing in the last year, Lindsay passed away. Luckily, we, in part of Lindsay, we got an inter- interview with him about, I think, less than a month before he died, which which I'm glad we did, because we got a really comprehensive, entire career, retrospective interview with him, which I, I thought was really important to have. And then Tomas Millian, who's a great actor-studio-trained actor, actor who's, who's in so many of these great Italian movies and is such an incredible actor, um, died last year as well i mean we we shot an interview with him for a big gun down but we were actually getting ready to do something again with him he lived in miami and then found out he had uh, raped, like a week before we were going to try to do something he passed away
1: well what is the next big show for you
0: i don't know I, I don't really have anything lined up right now i mean i've been waiting for sam to to do another picture but um you know he's, he's had a couple of things in pre-production that have fallen through or whatever and and hopefully, he has some 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 cool things, uh, you know, in the hopper that you know we can work together on at some point. I'm definitely uh, definitely working with him as my first and foremost priority. So,
1: well, it must have been nice working with him again on uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead. That
0: it was it was incredible to work on that show. All those years after Army of Darkness to to go to New Zealand, which was was weird because it was supposed to be like Michigan, but yeah, to, to uh, be able to uh, you know work with. Rob and and Rob Tapperd and and Bruce Campbell and Sam all together again. It was it was something. I mean it was yeah, it was it was it was great. Sam was just. Uh, I mean it was just like like old times. Look, I love Evil Dead One. I mean before I ever met Sam, I was a huge fan of of Evil Dead. You know, it was a movie that I saw in in East Lansing, Michigan on opening day at the um, the campus theater, and with like me and like two people in the audience. <laughs> And I uh, just loved it. Yeah, I mean, to to be able to work on Army of Darkness was great. And, and then, of course, the Evil Dead show. It's really um, a great experience.
1: And that pilot episode, I mean, that is just amazing.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it was such a different attitude than we were used to, because, like, all the pro- problems we had in Army of Darkness and studios complaining about tone issues, um, you know, S.T.A.R.S. was just like the opposite. I mean, they, you know, they... Screamed at the script. I don't think they really understood the tone at the time. And then when when they when they saw the first cut that we showed them, it was like, wow, we really didn't. I guess we weren't really expecting that, but that was really cool. You know, I, I don't think they. I think I think they thought it was going to be like more straightforward horror. But then it was, of course it was like a total Sam movie. When they saw it, they were just like very surprised, but like super supportive, which which is great. You know, it's like the opposite of like you know the old days of working with you know some of these studios.